I'm going to read two passages uh, from Matthew, and they're both quite different, but um, they both speak to um, what some of the journey of faith can look like. So um, they're both about Jesus, just a spoiler alert and, tr- and trigger warning. <laughs> Thanks, Ollie. Matthew 17, 1 to 9. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Matthew twenty seven, thirty eight to forty six. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemach semethani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as we sit with those two passages, um, we're returning to our Community of Memory series, which we started at the start of the year, which most of you have forgotten that we started at the start of the year. Um, Ironic, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great illustration of um, how our community is really forgetful. Um, One of the (laughs) typical features of our community is we get very enthusiastic about things, um, followed by a, a, a deep dive in the graph of enthusiasm and memory. And so we thought, Rod and I were talking about this habit of ours. Uh, and 
just discussing how we talk about lots of things that really interest us, and as a community, we discuss and share in things um, that at the time we go, man, this really matters, and I feel like we're getting somewhere, and we should really hang on to this because, you know, that's been really transformative. And then we see a dog or a bird um, or have a minor um, concussion and just totally forget <laughs> that that ever happened. Uh, and then later on, like ye- sometimes years later, someone will mention something and someone goes, oh, that changed my life. When, when someone talked about that thing, usually not Rod or I, usually one of you guys talking about it. Um, and and th- But I'd totally forgotten about it. So we thought we'd try and work out a way of building into our liturgy and practice uh, things that we've, we're trying to hang on to and trying to remember together, whether it be through song or prayer. And um, we, uh, I guess we're open to lots of different ways of remembering if people want to construct songs or art or poems or all kinds of things. Um, as an example of how good we are at remembering things, most of you have probably already forgotten, as I did, that the first thing that we talked about before we broke for the Beatitude series uh, was the, the upside-down kingdom. Um, Embracing God's upside down kingdom, we seek to um, we seek to see and honor those who are often unseen and dishonored. So we started the series and then um, took a short break for Lent as we kind of gathered our resources around this idea and invited people to kind of participate um, by offering things that help them remember this idea that we could include in our service. And we were inundated with an email. Um, it came in like a flood one day, and I had to sort through it all. Um, and someone came up with something, which is great, which we'll share a little bit later on. So, you know, like we haven't like quite nailed the group participation bit yet, but, you know, we're getting there. But if during the series you um, have anything that springs to mind that you think might help our community remember well, then um, feel free to offer it. And what Rod's doing some background work, um, con- constructing a prayer that will become a part of our liturgy that will kind of hopefully um, trigger some of these memories. So, Yeah. Um, so what we're going to be doing during this bit of the series is basically giving you just like little snippets and overviews of stuff that we have held as a community together. And some of these series, some of these were um, part of series that took kind of like nine months to birth. Uh, and so we're never going to be able to do justice to these ideas. And some of them might sound a bit flimsy because we're doing like little crazies of them rather than doing the entire series again, which would be, you know, problematic. Uh, but hopefully it'll give you enough to kind of, uh, if you're curious and weren't here for it, to kind of um, get started on, and we can point you, point you towards some further reading and listening and conversations and stuff, or um, if you were here for it, it might jog your memory that we actually talked about these things in the first place, so hopefully that's helpful. I'm getting a little hot under the collar. One moment. Always a win when you can take your jumper off without your nipples showing. That's my measure of that's my measure of success. <laughs> Depending on the context, of course. <laughs> and we're back in the room. Today we'll be talking about the role of doubt in the life of faith. And this is something that we talk about have talked about a fair bit over the years in different contexts. But um just as kind of a framing and to f- help frame our discussion, we've got a document called Shaping Stories, which is on our website, which probably needs a bit of updating. But basically, it's a it's a collection of ideas and stories and things that have um, that help people kind of come to terms with what sits at the centre of our community and some of the things that are particular to our, to our community. So, 
Um, I'm going to read the one from um, the role of doubt in the life of faith from what was it? So I'm just going to read this as a, as a bit of a um, synopsis, and then we'll talk a bit from there. Many of us who gather at FNCC find ourselves wrestling with Christian belief. We question, doubt, and experience anxiety over traditional evangelical responses and interpretations concerning the biblical themes of violence, genocide, conquest, sexuality, the treatment of women, judgment, the list goes on. Many of these things prove also to be considerable obstacles to the ongoing faith development of Christians who have grown up in an era of postmodernism. When you throw in experiences of feeling abandoned by God and the presence of immense suffering in the world, a simple, unquestioned relationship with God is not an option for many of our community. We're okay with this. Faith and authenticity should go hand in hand. Christianity requires faith. However, sadly, faith has at times been reduced to dogmatic certainty about a concrete set of beliefs rather than describing a particular kind of relationship. For us, faith is not the same thing as certainty. It is perhaps a little more like deep trust, learning what to hold on to and what to let go of, discerning who it is we hold on to, and following truth wherever it takes us is a process. Life asks questions of our faith, of our relationship with God, of our most sacredly held beliefs. Excuse the flimsy metaphor, but we are inclined to see mature and robust beliefs to be like soccer balls, They've been kicked around a bit and are able to hold their shape. Beliefs that must be treated like Ming vases in case they shatter or violently explode like landmines when interfered with have proven themselves to be immature and poorly formed. We acknowledge that both particular beliefs and our trust in God itself will be tested throughout our lives. Our quest for an authentic uh, faith will, uh, um, will ask us to ask questions of that faith. Got to rewrite that sentence. And, we've <laughs> and we feel like God is big enough to handle this. We hope and pray that in this process, what is most real, most true, and most beautiful will endure. For many of us, doubt is not the enemy of faith. We are called to faithfulness, not certainty. But nor is doubt a goal. Cynicism and angst can be cathartic, as many of us found out in our teens, but without hope, they are destructive. Um, we need more than doubt. Doubt isn't something we um, seek out, but we've found that doubt finds us all on its own. Today, I want to briefly discuss why this matters so much to us as a community. It has a lot to do with the fact that this is embedded in our communal experience and that each of us brings something different to the story. So one of the things that we do, if you've been around for a little while, um, and hopefully it doesn't terrify you too much if you haven't, is this thing called human scattergrams. Not everyone likes talking on microphones, which I find hard to believe, but uh, apparently it's true. Uh, so it can be really hard to try and get, uh, um, unless you kind of talk individually with every person in our community, which you know, if you stick around long enough, you may be able to do. It can be hard to get a sense of the narratives of the lives of our community and so we try and find different ways of telling stories. And one of the ways that we do this is using a thing called human scattergrams. Um, human scattergrams are essentially standing in different places in the room to kind of signify where you might be currently at with something. Um, and we use this for all kinds of stuff. Today we're using it to try and describe uh, what our faith journey has looked like if we're a person who says we have a faith journey. 
Hey podcast people, it's Shane here, but it is Monday Shane with a head cold rather than Sunday Shane with just the regular mumbling Kiwi accent. So uh, this is just to inform you that we didn't include the human scattergram stuff in the podcast because it's kind of like five minutes of uh, visual stuff that doesn't make any sense via audio. So if you want to check out the questions that we asked for the human scattergram, uh, you can look on the Facebook page, you'll post them up later this week, and you can kind of follow along as best as you can. So we'll jump back into the regular Sunday audio now. Beep, boop, beep. We're all different. <laughs> but there's overlap too. Um, lots of us have changed. I think I've talked before about the fact that if my if my 15-year-old self met my 35-year-old self, both would be really disappointed. <laughs> my 15-year-old self would have a, a lot to say. My 35-year-old self, how far I'd fallen. Quite a few years back, kind of in my mid-20s, I think, um, my life began to fall apart. Um, I've told bits of the story in the past, and again, we're doing synopsis, so we don't have time for the entire thing today. But um, my my quite good world began to break down. Um, I had a relationship that was excruciating. Um, that, despite my best efforts and despite feeling like I was really good at this couldn't fix. Um, I had, I was burning out big time. Um, I was caring for and carrying probably way too many people without enough nourishment going in. Um, I was working with a bunch of people who, um, a bunch of young people who challenged um, my entire worldview. Um, I had a really clear idea of how the world worked, which this group of kids ruptured in me. And I couldn't see how the message that I had was going to be of any help to them, which is hard when, you know, you've got the message that's going to change the world. Um, it's very disappointing. Um, I remember th for the first time ever my level of suffering and pain was larger than my capacity to metabolize it. Um, I'm excellent at suppression. <laughs> and even a juggernaut of suppression like me eventually can get overrun. And the real problem was that my beliefs and my relationship with God and my life experience was really deeply connected. And when one fell apart, they all threatened to fall apart. I had a worldview where if I did the right things and believed the right things and felt close to God and everything would work out fine, but when things don't work out fine, you start to question that whole narrative. Everything did not work out fine, quite the opposite. And the worse things got, the more I felt abandoned by God, the more my really cleverly pieced together and very robust set of beliefs about the way the world worked and the way life worked out um, began to fall apart. 
And when they're all interconnected in a particular way, if one thing falls apart, the whole thing threatens to fall apart. And next minute, um, you stop believing that good people go to hell. And, you know, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, that was a joke. I do remember, however, thinking at the time going, how will I know when I've gone too far? Um, it had something to do with hell and homosexuality being the two primary markers of orthodoxy, of course. Um, My experience of suffering was always manageable and justifiable, but once it tipped over into cruelty and disillusionment, I could no longer hold together the God I worshipped with the reality of my experience. Somehow, in my process of falling apart, I found this book. I know. It's from like the 80s, as you can tell by the authors. Look at Janet. The minx. And Robert's glasses. This was not my kind of book. I had read every 10 keys to being a successful despotic leader um, book on the shelf um, with much better covers than this, and all of them were new. <laughs> There are there are more than I had read, you're, you're correct. Um, but this book somehow found its way into my hands at a time where I desperately needed, needed it. Um, it's a book on, and there's a few different versions of this kind of thinking out there, but about how faith grows and develops and common but not necessarily universal patterns of what faith journeys can look like. Um, I'll talk about it in a minute and why it was helpful, but I just remember devouring this book and going, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not the first person to go through this. Because literally, in the kind of community and context I was in, um, what I was going through was not talked about. It did not happen to people who love God. And I had no context to place myself in. And I just remember going, I'm not alone. I remember saying out loud, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And how amazing that felt. Give you a really, really quick synopsis. And again, I'm not going to be able to do justice to it. And I'm a person who's highly doubtful of systems. Um, so I understand your credulity. Yes. Oh, for the podcast, the name is The Critical Journey. I'll post some stuff about this on Facebook if you like, if you want to explore it more. I'd like to spend some time in this, but again, we don't have time today, but um, I'll give you a little overview. Um, it's called The Critical Journey. Um, and it describes, again, like not everyone's faith journey plays out like this, but this is a kind of common pattern that through lots of research and story that they've found plays out in lots of people's spirituality. Um, not everyone goes... Th through every stage, it's not, there's no sense of kind of like progression as in like you've got to try and move through the levels and you become better and better. Um, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Um, in fact, <laughs> the closer you stay to level one, the nicer life is, um, but we don't all get that option. Um, so stage one is kind of like the honeymoon phase. Like So with spirituality of kind of finding a sense of spirituality that really makes sense to you, getting wrapped and caught up in it and falling in love in a way that's like life-changing and transformational. Um, lots of people 
in our community will have a story about kind of the moment that happened or the kind of season that that happened in them um, and for them. And um, it's the kind of falling in love where suddenly this awakening to something beyond yourself in a way that's just truly amazing and great. Stay there. Stay there. No, don't. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's like Billy Madison. I can't wait to go to Ike school. <laughs> Stay where you are for as long as you can. Um, <laughs> stage two. Oh, stage two is discipleship, learning. So it's when you kind of spend enough time in this kind of like state of amazing being held by the divine and you go, I want to learn. I want to know. I want to explore. I want to find out every, I want to consume everything I can about this and learn what it is to be a person who can like live in this and what it means for my life and maybe how I can change the world, depending on what context you find yourself in, your language about it will be different. But um, it might have involved lots of reading books or lots of, um, or kind of like placing yourself under a guru or, you know, some kind of trying to consume um, and get your head around and get your heart around the ex- and explain the experience that you had or are having. Um, stage three the act of life is about serving. It's about going, I've been touched by this thing and now I know something about what it is to be this kind of person and now I want to go and do something. I want to go and change something. I want to go and save some people. I want to go and do something with what I've got and absorbed. Um, and this is kind of the last good stage. <laughs> I was in the thick of stage three, working for a church, had one of the biggest youth groups in my country, which is, you know, you should get medals for. Um, I, you know, like I was winning at doing stuff. I was working six nights a week, which just shows how passionate you are um, <laughs> and that you're a martyr, which is kind of like Jesus as well. So that's good. Um, my body was suffering and I was losing teeth because I wasn't going to the dentist because I was working too hard, which again is just like there'll be teeth in heaven. So <laughs> I'm going to have more teeth than any of you, like lay it like a shark, lay it back. Um, I was, killing, I was killing stage three. Um, then <laughs> there's this thing called the wall. And the wall and the journey inward, which is stage four, are intertwined. But they kind of pulled the wall out as a kind of concrete experience that triggered stage four, where everything begins to fall apart. <laughs> where the thing that you knew and felt safe and comfortable and loved in, the thing that gave you your identity, where everything worked out, where you found meaning because you were able to give and serve and all these things together, um, that life happens in such a way that none of it makes sense anymore. I'll read a little, little description of the wall. In the wall, the transition to entering into stage four There is this scary place where it feels like everything is up for grabs. Everything we once knew is somehow gone or just doesn't bring life. We don't feel safe or satisfied or energized in the system we used to give our heart and time and money to. The way we used to experience God just doesn't seem to be working anymore, or at least not like the level it was. There are far more questions than answers. It can be a most confusing stage, but also a most glorious stage, didn't feel like that to me, Um, because it is where we begin to let go of some of the comforts that protected us so well, but also kept us from a deeper and richer experience of God. 
Many concerned onlookers observe, thinking that we are losing the plot, becoming heretical, losing the faith with the hope that once this phase is over, we'll come back home as soon as possible and be like we were before. Doubt and the wall, they weren't an option that I chose. They were a way of life coming to me. Um, I was sure I was losing everything and I was also sure I would never recover. I was about a quarter right. <laughs> I lost and lost and lost in that season. I, again, I've talked about this before and won't today, but it was really, really dark. It seemed really unnecessary and was unnecessary. But in that process, something happened. In that losing, and I never thought I'd say these words, I managed to find something. My life deepened. Much to my surprise, I found my way back to something. Or perhaps more accurately, uh, accurately, I was found by one that I could actually love. One with both radical continuity and discontinuity continuity with the God I felt forsaken by. Perhaps one of the most transformative ex- um, lessons for me was that doubt and loss were not the enemy. In fact, they were a path to new life. Um, this little quote from Peter Enns from a book called The Sin of Certainty. Doubting God is painful and frightening because we think we are leaving God behind, when in fact we are only leaving behind ideas about God that we are used to surrounding ourselves with, the small God, the God within our control, the God who moves in our circles, the God who agrees with us. This is what Christian tradition calls the Pascal mystery. Jesus said, Very truly I tell to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Death gives the possibility of resurrection. Don't ever choose death. (laughs) But if it comes to find you, there's a potential for something on the other side. I remember being in a state where there was some kind of sick pleasure. I, was, I became comfortable. The only kind of safe space I knew was doubt and despair. I didn't like them, but at least I knew they could be trusted. But slowly I also learned that being untethered couldn't be a permanent state. This process freed me from unhealthy forms of spirituality, but it didn't nourish me. I needed new life after the rest had been burned away. And it was in part this community here that gave me space to find new life. Again, which I never thought would happen. Because this is such a common experience in our community, we are marked by it. And we try and keep making space for it. Different ones of us are at different places of this journey. Different ones of us, as we illustrated earlier, have different relationships to what spirituality looks like. We don't see it as our role to tell you that what you're experiencing isn't legitimate and that we know it'll all work out. Because we don't know that. We can't tell you with certainty that God is real or good or faithful. But what we can do for those of us who are experiencing something can keep telling our stories of God's reality and goodness and faithfulness 
which again, don't make them true. It could also be, you know, um, brainwashing. But for us, there's something that resonates in that experience. And we need to keep telling our stories because of those of us who are in great places need to keep remembering what life is like for those who aren't. And those of us who aren't in great places potentially need the possibility and hope that comes with someone who's walked through the other side of this. We are here to annoy and irritate each other. I hated it when someone sang a song about the goodness of God when I was in my dark place. I edited out (laughs) songs that were being sung in church until I barely had anything to sing, and it really annoyed me. But I also needed to remember that potentially there's something on the other side. And when I'm in a good place and someone talks about how it's all bullcrap and that God isn't actually there for them, it annoys me now too. But I need that as well because they're all part of the experience. We want to be a community of the Pascal mystery where we lose things and find them again. Where suffering and death, despite never being something we seek out, have the possibility of bringing resurrection and life. That on the other side of loss is hope. And that is why we're a community of hope. Not of promises and triumphalism, but of really deeply good possibilities. Rod wrote a little synopsis of this entire thing, which I could have saved myself a lot of time if I just read this instead, which is often the case. We believe in a God who often calls us to doubt so that faith may take new forms. And that's what we hope to be a community of. So we'll try and remember that together. Um, I hope today annoyed you. It annoyed me. (laughs) I hope that we keep annoying each other with our stories and experiences. Some of you are great at it. You really (laughs) are. But I hope we keep annoying each other with, with hope and loss. That we'd never become siloed into one space, but that we'd be brave in the face of both things, and that God might find us in the midst of that. For those of you today who are in the depths of anger and despair or numb nothingness, we see you. And we hear you. And please don't let our positivity annoy you out of the building. And for those of you who are in in an experience of life and goodness or have never faced this kind of despair, we hear you and see you and we need you. You bring great gifts. And hopefully together we're stronger and there is the possibility of life bursting forth. So we're going to eat and drink together, communion. Um, our practice is together around the table which is in the middle there. Um, we nearly ran out of juice, so we've um, short poured you and watered it down. So just pretend you're at a nightclub at 2 a.m. because that's what they're doing to you. Except we're not overcharging you, so that's something. Um, we'll gather around the table and eat and drink together. You can choose not to participate in um communion, that's absolutely okay. Or you can pretend if you don't want to stand out but don't want to participate, that's okay too. Um, But for those of you who this means something for, um, we consider the body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ. 
and we consider each other as we stand in this space. So as you take a bit of cracker and a bit of juice, we're going to wait for each other and then eat and drink together at the end. But I want you to think about where you sit at the moment and how you sit. And I want you to think about the people who surround you and say a prayer for them in that space as well. Let's gather around the table if you choose to participate today. Let's pray. Loving God, nothing really springs to mind compared to you. mean to me, the gift that they have all been to me in so many different ways. And I pray that, oh, words are coming. Um, I pray that, that that may continue, that um, we may continue to be the bits of grit in our oysters to make pearls. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> Pearls are nice. Nice as things, but um, yeah. Thanks for these people. Thank you for the incredibly beautiful story of of Jesus and how, despite how absurd it sometimes feels to base your entire life on a dead, homeless first century Jew. There are times also when our bodies sing with resonance to his life and words. So help us as we swing from one to the other together. Help us not to collide too much with each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. He's probably the only one that can understand what I just said. Amen.